<laughs> okay, so today we have Jacob here from Acurix. Thank you so much for being on your, was it your second podcast? My second ever podcast. <laughs> hey, thank you for coming. Um, would you be able to give us an overview of what Acurix is building right now and the impact you aspire to have with your new product? Yeah, absolutely. So we think healthcare is a communication industry. Mm. It wasn't 50 years ago, it was a knowledge industry because basically you went to a doctor and they would see you, treat you, prescribe, diagnose, they'd do everything. Yeah. Um, healthcare was very much a knowledge industry. Then fast forward 50 years, it's got a lot more complex. It's yeah. now a communication industry. If you go and talk to people on the front line about what they did today, it's mm. made a referral, got a second opinion, got information to a patient. Um, so that's where the value is added in healthcare communication. Mm. Our vision is that everyone who's involved in a patient's care can communicate with everyone else involved in that patient's care, mm. regardless of what organization they work for. And obviously that also includes the, the patient being part of their care. Um, so that's our vision. Um, in terms of our product, our core product today is used by GP practices around the country to message their patients. And mm. That's grown organically basically over the last two years, really rapidly. Um, where we're doing a lot of work now is in moving into hospitals and starting to join up different parts of the healthcare system. In terms of like patient outcomes, like do you mm -hmm. think like the technology like yours can increase the quality of diagnosis or kind of cut down on misdiagnoses mm -hmm. when it comes to patients? Um, so I definitely like to hope so. I think <laughs> one one th decision we've made is mm -hmm. we haven't focused on very specific use cases. You know, we haven't built a product for. Mm -hmm pathway for patients with diabetes mm. or for patients adhering to medication where they've got this disease we've tried to give frontline staff a suite of of tools of products that they can innovate in how they use so the mm. example i always compare to is you know something like microsoft excel people use in like 101 different ways mm. for all sorts of different outcomes but they're able to to innovate um, we get amazing feedback from practices in terms of increasing their uptake of screening programs in terms of making sure that patients are on a medication who need certain blood tests get those blood tests mm. um, but i think a lot of it is also benefits in patient experience so mm. not being told oh if your test results are normal you won't hear from us kind of no news is good news but actually yeah. like having good communication mm. um, and then one of the areas we've learned a huge amount over the last year is actually where we can have a huge amount of impact is by making life easier for staff and mm. that actually lets them improve patient outcomes because they've got more time and they're less stressed and they can spend time in an appointment focusing on the right things. So that's been really rewarding mm. over the past past year or so. Well, what was like, I mean, we, we spoke previously and you said that, you know, you went for a big pivot, which we'll go mm. into later, but what was like the insight or the kind of cue that kind of made you build out this product? Was there a ground truth that you figured out as you were testing? So. Unfortunately not, it was, there was no light bulb moment. There's no light bulb moment. Um, we, we initially started out building a product for antibiotic prescribing. And that's yeah. when Lawrence and I met on Entrepreneur First, that's, mm. what, we, that's what we started doing. Um, and part of that product was sending information to a patient. So at the end of a, a, like a pathway, you'd go through a bunch of questions, get information around whether a patient needs a prescription or not, if so, which prescription, and you could send advice to the patient. Mm. Um, when we tested that and GPs would use it and they'd click send advice and it would go into their IT system, their clinical record system and go through to the patient's phone at the same time, they thought it was like witchcraft. It was like this wow <laughs> moment that where they're like, what, you can do this yeah. in you know, 2016? Mm. Um, so that was, I'd say, the first seed where the, there was like, okay, there's definitely a problem to solve here. Yeah. You know, practices. We, you'd look at what they would do to get messages to patients and it'd be like, dictate a letter, give the tape to, mm. the dictation mm. tape to the admin team, they would type it up, GP would check the letter, they'd put it in the post. So like, it's not hard to look at that and see room for improvement. Yeah. Um, but the reality of it is we only really landed on Chain SMS, which is our kind of flagship. It's the most widely used product by trying about 20, building about 20 things um, and yeah. practices and seeing, you know, both what really stuck, what um, mm. people really engaged with, but also what was scalable, because we built a lot of different things that had a big improvement um, when, mm. we, when we pivoted, 
but were very tricky to scale nationally. We'd have to like go into each practice and do a lot of change management. Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of your current product now, like um, you said, what, is, it, is one in three GPs using your... Yes, it's a bit more now. It? It's, it's over 40% of GP wow. practices in England okay. um, in the space of about 20 months um, without any marketing. So we, do, we didn't expect that to happen. Mm. That's, I mean, it's definitely surprised us. It didn't, you know, it didn't happen overnight. So we've obviously seen it grow over time, which has been amazing. Mm. Um, the nicest thing about that is there's this myth that the NHS is terrible at adopting technology. Healthcare is terrible at adopting technology. Really? Explain um, yeah. A lot of people talk, you know, they see processes in hospitals being very manual, very antiquated, lots mm. of legacy systems. You know, why am I still getting letters in 2019? Mm. Why can't, when I go to the hospital, they look at my GP record? Or lots and lots of, it's not hard to find examples of technology being, you know, significantly behind other sectors. Mm. So it's really, really nice as a, as a team to have a m big fat counterexample where we're like, hang on a sec, you know, almost half the practices in the country in less than two years have started using something completely of their own accord. No one said like, you've got to use this, which is normally how yeah. tech's introduced in healthcare, completely of their own accord. Yeah. They've set themselves up, they've started using it mm. um, and they've spread it as well. So, mm. you know, all our growth has been through, through referrals and, and, and people sharing the product with others. So it's, yeah, so that's really rewarding for mm. the team. I mean, you went through a lot of iterations. Um, I mean, you did a massive pivot mm. uh, previously. So, I mean, how was, the, could you talk us through that journey and kind of how you've kind of reached um, uh, kind of product market fit really? I mean, what core components did you guys really focus on? Yeah, it was a long journey. Um, so the first 18 months of the company, we were completely focused on antibiotic prescribing. So from... That was from EF, right? Yeah. yeah. That's what we started, you know, when Lawrence and I met there in April 2016, yeah. that's what we started on. Mm. And we pivoted in September, October 2017. And the reason we pivoted is we... There were two main things. One is we were just struggling to get usage up. So we'd demo our software, we'd show it to people, especially... The, you know, what tended to happen is the people we would get time with were the people mm. who really cared about antibiotic prescribing. That's why they gave us their time in the first place. So yeah. that we were a bit kind of biased by that in hindsight. Yeah. Um, but people got it. They were like, yeah, it looks great, really slick. Even when I look at it now, it's like, wow, that was really slick software. But yeah. people just didn't use it. It wasn't routine enough. It wasn't what's like a painkiller. It was like a vitamin, like something people are like meant to use rather than okay. something that has immediate benefit. So that was one problem and we had these like weekly usage meetings that were really depressing and we'd look at the numbers and if we got 10 uses in a day that was a really good day we were like you know what could we do to increase usage and we tried everything we like printed stickers for them to put on the corners of their screen then we sent uh, we put loads of stuff in the product to like pop up all sorts i yeah. couldn't get it up the second big driver for pivoting was spending more time with the commissioners in healthcare who pay who you know would would ultimately be our customers and after just going to lots of those meetings having a, a long hard thinking going even if we built the perfect product that halved inappropriate antibiotic prescribing would they pay for it probably not so ah. we need to move on um and what we what we did initially we didn't you know pivot straight onto chain sms or onto communication we went there was, there was this podcast, a really good podcast um, with Brian Chesky from Airbnb on being really unscalable at the start to work out what you need to build. So we got okay. the whole team to listen to that. And we spent four months in one GP practice, almost living there, like three days a week we were there. It was absolutely exhausting. They were in Oxford. We'd drive there. We'd try and get there for 8.30 when the, the practice opened. So you could be in, that, in for that phone rush at the beginning of the day. And our goal was, can we make two practices dependent on us in four months? Nothing scalable, let's just like build stuff there. Like mm. I'd come from like consult, like kind of quite operational consulting before. So almost like trying to run one of those projects, but in mm. a GP practice. Turns out two practices was way too many and actually just focusing on one yeah. let us do a lot more. Um, and we did loads. We changed how they collect data from patients, how they manage knowledge there, how they wrote to their staff, how they manage training. We slashed the waiting time for appointments from two weeks to two days, just overnight without adding any extra capacity. Mm. Um, we were working a lot on moving workload from GPs to other staff. Um, 
and one of the things we tested was this messaging product and mm. you know taking that bit of our antibiotic prescribing product and making that more broadly usable um, of all those different things we tried some of them worked some of them didn't work some of them kind of worked mm. the only one that was really scalable um, well that we thought was really scalable was the patient messaging so we we developed this you know this belief or we identified this challenge that healthcare is really bad at scaling innovation yeah. and try to look into why and when you look at it it's like at the time we were going physically to every practice to demo the software then we would go back to install it then we'd go back to install it on the computers we couldn't get to the first time then maybe we'd go back to like in nudge them to use it if Dropbox had to come to every customer and like demo it like they wouldn't exist as a company yeah. so our view is very much field sales kills innovation in healthcare. We have to build something self-service. Um, quite a few people told us it was impossible because nobody had built anything self-service in mm. healthcare. By self-service, I mean like, you know, go to our website, create an account, set things up yourself and, mm. and just start using it any yeah. time of day. Um, so, we yeah, we had to find something scalable where that, where that was feasible. Mm. Um, and we did this experiment beginning of 2018 where we were like okay people like the patient messaging and you know the handful of practices we've tried it in can we make a version of this that people set them up themselves yeah so we started out doing it remotely where we'd use team viewer and we'd make mm. it look like it was automated you know you'd si sign up to our website and we'd send you so well before we so initially we just did it on team viewer and we'd mm. like you know over email arrange and then install yeah. remotely then we did a process where we had a sign up form on our website yeah. and we'd quickly make a web page for the practice in Wix <laughs> to look like it was automated and then yeah. send them a link being like, here's your setup page, you know, with the download <laughs> link and their li API license key and things like that. And, yeah. You know, materials to print out for the team. Mm. Um, and yeah, so we did that, that worked. And we basically just then kept trying to automate bits of the, the process. Mm. And spent most of 2018 just focused on making that as seamless as possible. So yeah. if somebody hits our website, how can we make sure that within five minutes they're messaging their patients? And I mean, someone hits our website for the first time ever. They don't have an account, nothing. Mm. They've got to like install, download our stuff, install it, integrate it with their medical record. And all of those things, you know, months of work went into each of them. Mm. Even just like downloading software sounds simple, but when some practices have like, terrible internet speeds mm. there was a point where we nearly sent out cd-roms in the post because like really? practices just couldn't download our software yeah. um so that was a lot of 2018 and then summer 2018 we'd, we'd had all these different problems and i make it sound like we realized okay we need to focus on this and then just focused on it the reality is we were trying to do like 10 things at once um and in the summer we were like hang on loads of these problems their root cause is communication and Furthermore, that's when we clocked and we were like, actually, we think most of what healthcare is, is today is communication. And if you can communicate easily, you can give really good care. And if you can't, it's really hard to give good care. Mm. So we got rid of everything we were working on or considering that wasn't about communication, just focused on communication. Mm. Um, and that's when we started to think beyond the GP practice. So until that point, we were very focused on, on primary care and GP practices. Mm. We started to go hang on, loads of communication with GP practices with the hospital team or with the district nurse or with the care home or with the pharmacy, that's over fax or through the post or, you know, phone tennis where you call the switchboard for the hospital, try and get someone who can't and then they mm. call reception, things like that. So that, that's when we really focus on communication. Um, and so basically since then, since uh, summer 2018, we've been trying to move forward at the same time, improving our core GP product for messaging patients and then building out those next kind of layers of communication mm. within teams, between teams, things like that. Yeah. You touched on something that was quite profound. Um, in terms of getting the, um, it, when you talked about usage and adoption, mm. uh, so getting the, uh, the GP to go onto the website and being able to get set up within two minutes. Would you be able to go over that again? Because that must be a massive part of reaching product market fit and also increasing the adoption of the product, right? Yeah. So I think it's Intercom that talk about this quite a lot and talk about it really mm. well. It's like, if you're going to focus on any part of the product, mm. 
focus on the onboarding and sign up experience because that's the thing that everyone sees. It's the yeah. first thing they see. And you can go and add this feature that everyone's nagging you to add, but yeah. if people can't sign up, they're never going to see that feature. Mm. Um, now, partly we were a bit lucky in that because the core product was so simple, as mm. in, well, simple for a user. There's a lot going on in the background, but for a user, it's so simple in terms of I've got the patient open on my medical record system, I click a button, I type a message, I hit send, it goes as an SMS. Mm. Because that was so simple, we didn't have loads and loads of, you know, we didn't have to find the perfect workflow or product market fit there. We could actually really focus our time on the onboarding. Um, so a really crucial thing for us was the time to value being tiny. So we talk about like, when's the first moment of joy someone experiences? For us, the first moment of joy is when they've set us up, they've opened a dummy patient in the mm. medical record system, and they've uh, clicked our button, sent a message, they've changed the mobile number to their own personal mobile phone, typed the message, and they hit send. The moment of joy is when it lands on their phone, and their phone goes bing, and they've got a message they just typed on their screen on their phone. So you're like, how can we make it as quick as possible for that to happen? Second moment of joy is when they then see it go in the medical record as well. People really like that. Mm. Um, so that's what a lot of our time was spent doing is how can we make sure that, you know, whatever, whether that user's got admin privileges on their computer or not, mm. whether they've got the latest version of .NET, the .NET framework on their computer or not, whether they've, you know, what internet speed they've got, any of these things mm. that they can try us out. Um, that was really, really crucial to adoption. Um, and it fitted quite well with you know how we ultimately grew, which was referrals. Mm. Um, so we tried, a, you know, to grow. We tried a lot of things. We tried Google Ads. We tried Facebook Ads. We tried cold calling practices. We tried cold emailing. We tried going to events. We tried advertising publications. We tried co-promoting with Emis, the main medical record system. The only thing that worked at all in in getting some initial users was sending letters in the post with a handwritten post-it note on saying try this out where we just sent a letter by itself no conversion where we sent it with a post-it note on got like three percent conversion did you guys do that yeah we were just like Lorna and our team was amazing she would like go home put on a netflix box set and just like scram through post-it notes some friday afternoons as a team would like have you know a bit of a competition everyone would get a stack and who could get through them the fastest we did, you know, initially 100 letters like that, and we did another 100, then I think we did 200. Conversion wasn't big, it was like 3%, but what it got us is, is these, like, individual practices around the country. 99% mm. of our growth then came from referrals. So we, initially it just happened, like, incredibly organically. Um, people would just, you know, start, you know, sign up and would say, oh, how did you hear about us? And they'd say, oh, this other GP told me. Or we'd get... A big moment for us was when we were in about 25 practices. Mm. We had this user come on our on our chat and ask us loads of questions. We thought, oh, they're never going to install. They've got, you know, they're so sceptical. Anyway, we were like, just try it out. They tried it out. Later that day, they set up for the whole practice. The next day, they emailed 30 practices in the area, CC'd us being like, you've got to try this out. So, we, mm. And at the point in time, we were in like 25 practices. They've just emailed 30. So we were like, okay, I think referrals is going to be pretty key here. Yeah. Um, and nothing beats someone you know and trust saying, I use this, you should too. Mm. Like no, no amount of like advertising spend or anything like that. Mm. So that, that was really, really crucial to our adoption. That's, I find it really fascinating. Like time to value. I've never heard it put so succinctly, but like a lot of like the top consumer apps and mm. a lot of businesses actually do that, with, whether it's these mainstream social platforms. Mm. Um, I remember listening to Shamath Pali Hapatia where he says, because uh, he was a VP of user growth for Facebook and he, okay. he, he said the whole objective for this app was to get get everyone's seven friends and to create a viral loop of joy yeah and and get it as, as quick as possible and like you're the first person I've kind of heard like time to value metric and trying to squeeze that as, as, as fast as possible mm. and that's never done in healthcare so yeah. in healthcare typically the time to value is like 12 months like from the first <laughs> meeting to staff on the front line yeah. using it, assuming there's even a moment of joy. I don't, yeah. You talk to lots of doctors, I don't think they've got many moments of joy about the software. It's more like moments <laughs> of frustration. But like, yeah. time to value is like of the order of months slash years. So you know, if you can do it with minutes, um, 
the other part that really accelerated adoption was avoiding the consensus decision, we call it. So interesting. something where you've got to get five people or 10 people or even just two people in a room at the same time to agree on using something and everyone needs to say yes, but one person can say no and veto everything. Mm. And that's just like toxic because how on earth are you going to get all these people on board and excited but they haven't even tried it out or experienced mm. it? So you've got to get people to experience the value before any sort of consensus decision. Mm. Um, and that's where, you know, being self-service, really focusing on individual users, being able to sign up, try us out, was really, really crucial. Um, mm. Because otherwise it's, you know, we'll put it in this meeting in three months' time and then the agenda's going to be rushed and then they discuss it and there's those questions that come out and... Mm. People are very, very driven by risk in healthcare, not by opportunity. Um, Interesting. And you've got to take account of risk. Like, yeah. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about what the risk, but you've also got to think about opportunity and mm. the opportunity cost of not doing something. Um, and that's partly our challenge: is how do we make people see the opportunity of like what they can do with easy communication? Mm-hmm. Um, what are your tips for entrepreneurs trying to sell into the healthcare system and? kind of finding innovative ways of trying to get customers and get customer attention. Yeah. I mean, you talked about initially when, uh, you know, you tried to, you, you talked about uh, time versus value metric. Um, yeah. I mean, have you got anything else in terms of speeding up that process? So one, one huge thing we've done is at the moment our software is completely free. We plan on it always being free to GP practices. There are other customers in the health system who are much more, you know, used to paying for software, but that partly removes the consensus decision because, mm. you know, however much you're going to spend, whether it's thousands or whether it's 20 quid, like people will, it, it goes around in loops of meetings around, you know, should we spend, mm. spend that money? So that, that helps speed things up. Eliminating, you know, massively reducing time to value um, is really key. Um, and really, really focusing on end users. So the great thing about going for bottom-up adoption, which is what we've done, mm. exactly like something like Dropbox has done. You know, don't yeah. go to the head of IT and get them to buy it for the whole org. Mm. Get the end user to share file. Mm. Firstly, it's just faster and more fun because you spend your time building products instead of spending your time going to meetings. Mm. Um, but secondly, if you're focusing on end users you're not building the checkboxes that like the procurement team thinks people need. You're actually building features that people find useful. Yeah. And that is, I think, where most healthcare software has fallen down, is if you look at it, it's super configurable, has loads of these features that people don't want, loads mm. of stuff they actually need isn't in there. And it's because those companies haven't built for their end users. They've built for procurement teams and winning tenders and things like that. So for us, getting really high adoption has been all about spending loads of time with end users. So you know, I spoke about when we pivoted, we basically lived in a practice for months and mm-hmm. everyone in the team spent time there, software developers, everyone in appointments, shadowing the phones on receptions, like everything. Everyone in our team visits a practice at least once a quarter. Some people, it's, you know, multiple times a week, it depends on their role, but everyone at least once a quarter. All our team offsites we do in GP practices, we're so spending time there. Everyone on our team does half a day every month on support with our users. So there's something about really spending as much time as possible building empathy with your users. We've got in the corner of our office over there, we've got a GP desk, which like looks and feels like a GP practice. So when we test software, it's on you know a small screen with a slow <laughs> computer and an uncomfortable chair. Yeah. Like, that's how people use our software. They don't yeah. use it on like two big widescreens with a really fast computer mm. and you know a comfortable chair. Yeah. Um, so. Building empathy and really, build, yeah, building for those end users has, has been really crucial mm. as well. That's interesting. You said that not enough innovation is kind of tailored to the end user in the healthcare space. Have you seen that? So, um, and you kind of alluded to it, like a lot of the software products and packages are kind of tailored for the procurement team and um, people quite high up instead of the end user. Mm. That's really interesting. I never really thought of that. Um, in terms of, um, in terms of being agile in the healthcare space and it's mm. something that you wanted to talk on previously. Mm. I mean, how important is it to be agile? Um, and would you be able to kind of elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think if you're building any software product and you're not building it in an agile way, whatever your def- definition of agile, mm. and people get, you can get really academic about it. But if you're not, ultimately, 
um, you know, optimizing for learning as fast as possible mm. and for shipping product rather than making PowerPoint decks or you yeah. know, having loads of meetings and discussions. Like, it's going to be really hard to build, you know, transformative, like world-changing products. Mm. That's pretty well understood in the software world. Where it gets really hard is doing that in healthcare and lots of people are like, oh, you can't do, can't build an agile way in healthcare because lives are at stake and they are, mm. and, you know, because you're handling really sensitive data and all these different factors. Um, so a lot of our learnings over the past few years have been how can we get to the point where we can build an agile way in healthcare. Mm. So first part of that is do the basics right. Like if you do security and, and data governance and clinical safety right and you get the foundations right it lets you build so much faster because we know we can store we can store patient data on our cloud servers and we don't have to you know go through loops of oh we can't build a prototype because like we can't store data here it's like we've got yeah. the basics right we've got all the right data processing agreements with practices we've got been all through the right assurances with different parts of nhs digital things like that so that that gives us really great foundations um Second thing that's really helped us is having this amazing user base slash fan base of people we can really quickly learn from. So mm. if I've got a question about, you know, how do we build that feature, I put it in our user Facebook group and like within an hour, 20 or 30 people have responded with their opinion and some of them are happy to have a phone call. And mm. We can really quickly learn, you know, we build prototypes and do remote testing over over Zoom where we'll get people to click through the yeah. prototype and we'll put it up on the big screen and, and watch how they use it. So we didn't have that at the beginning. We had mm. like one or two practices, but we spent a lot of time there. Now we've, you know, got hundreds of practices who engage with testing. Mm. Um, so that's that's really key, key to being agile. Um, and then another thing we've done that's, that's, that's let us be quite agile is we haven't... Um, we haven't tried to displace any of their existing systems. Everything we've done has either been orthogonal or augmented it. So we haven't tried to replace their clinical record system. We've just focused on communication. And that means mm. we can put a really small increment out because practices aren't saying, oh, well, it needs to do these 200 things that are something else does before I'll even think about using it. Mm. Because at the moment, they've got nothing. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of stuff in healthcare where there's just complete... Greenfield, and as a company, one of our principles is that we we don't we're not interested in building like ten percent better versions of things they've already got, twenty percent or thirty percent better, better versions of things they've already got. We want to build the stuff they don't have, mm. um, and it's something that you know people in the team will call out if we're talking about a feature. And we're like, actually, you know, this company does that. We you know, waste of time. Let's go and build the stuff that nobody's working on. Yeah. Um, but that lets you be more agile in terms of shipping something fast that isn't feature complete but that people can use and get value from because you're not mm. having to compete with you know some incumbent and product mm. so i'd say those are, you know those are some of the things we found get the basics right have a really good user base for testing and then and then sit orthogonal to like their mm. their uh, like existing systems that's incredible uh, i want to talk about business so far now so mm. you started out with the ef process yeah how was it um, I mean, I've, I've spoken to quite a few founders and they said, you know, they talked about how quick they got into teams, how yeah, quick yeah. they didn't. Uh, some of it was love at first sight. Some <laughs> of it wasn't. How was it with you and Lawrence? Um, it was pretty close to love at first sight. Was so it? Set, set the scene. <laughs> EF is a bit like an awkward teenage <coughs> disco where, you know, someone's... You're working with someone, but actually you're really interested in what someone else is doing. Do you want to work with them, but you don't want to tell this person? There's a lot of that. Um, Lawrence is the first person I worked with. He, he'd been working with someone else for just a couple of days, I think, but was really excited about the, the healthcare space. He'd come from the oil and gas industry before, really wanted to do something with impact. Um, and EF's very good at saying, you know, just get into teams, start building stuff. If you're happy and you're productive, keep going. If you're not happy or you're not productive, stop and find, find a, you know, another team. And I, I think both of us went on really to find a co-founder that you know the main value there's loads of other stuff that comes from being on EF mm. um, but the biggest thing for us was finding a co-founder who really cared about you know having a big impact in the healthcare mm. space um, so yeah for that I'd, I'd really recommend it we had a really great experience we came out of that September 2016 um, our first hire, Ben Lawrence, had worked with previously. Mm. Um, we uh, 
they'd spent you know months discussing the problem and like Ben would help us solve things on weekends and stuff so it was really keen and we were mm. like oh we should probably make an offer and then Ben was like I've handed my notice so I was like okay we should definitely make him an offer <laughs> to join the team um, but you know um, yeah Ben's been fantastic and we yeah. kind of started growing the team from there mm. raised our first we actually got a grant first in late 2016 we were awarded it kicked off early 2017 what was that Innovate? Um, from Innovate UK yeah ah, so we've had two Innovate UK grants which are you know fantastic in terms of a lot of investors especially early stage investors don't want to touch healthcare because it's like you know government customer and it's a highly regulated space and um it's you know really hard to fundraise in healthcare i found i think it, i think it has got easier but mm. we found it really challenging so innovate uk grants have been fantastic for that in terms of helping us get to the point where we've de-risked a lot of things and actually we can go to investors with like look we've got some serious traction here mm. Um, so did that, got our first kind of angel money beginning of 2017. We were still doing antibiotic prescribing at the time, you know, kept building out there. I think, you know, our investors then, they were all individuals except EF, and they were really investing in, in the team. They, you know, I don't think any of them were so obsessed with the idea or even the problem. It was, it was very much, they thought we, you know, they, they say they got our energy that we really mm. wanted to build something in healthcare. Um, and yeah, luckily with having two grants, actually, we were able to, you know, pivot and then still, you know, keep going as a business for essentially 18 months until we got the, um, the mm. Series A money in. That's incredible. I mean, in hindsight, um, mm. what kind of, I mean, looking back now, um, I mean, what kind of constituted to, to like a really successful pivot? Because, I mean, obviously, you were, you know, you talked about the process of literally living in the in the GP. Yeah. Um, are, are there specific components or traits that enabled you to really successfully pivot? Because mm. pivots a lot of time, a lot of the time just don't go well. Mm. It's a really interesting question, what made that work? So I think we had an incredibly loyal team mm. who really like, we enjoyed working together. We'd, you know, we were definitely productive together. We were, you know, moving fast. Now we might be moving in the wrong direction, but we, you know, we, we could build products and we could move fast together. And people enjoyed that. Um, and a lot of the things I've spoken about, you know, post pivot came from before. So spending a load of time with users, mm. trying to ship things fast, um, building for user needs, not building for, you know, tick boxes, getting mm. the basics right around things like security and clinical safety. like. All of that we were doing pre-pivot. A lot of our technology, not you know, our technology today, obviously we, there's a lot more than then, but when we started growing Chain SMS and building that, a lot of that technology had come from what we built pre-pivot mm. in terms of integrations with the record systems, how we deployed, you know, installed software, things like that, how we updated it. Mm. Um, I think what helps, but we could have been even better at is not a kind of, half pivot where we're oh you know we're going to look at these other things it was very clear to the team it was yeah. like this thing has no future yeah this is what we need to be working on now yeah. i think we could have been more extreme well we definitely could have looking back like we yeah. kept that product going because we didn't want to disappoint the people who did occasionally use it mm. um maybe that was the right thing to do you know we there's always a, a concern we had was if we turned things off people would be less willing to try things in the future because they're like, oh, mm. this is just going to be turned off. Um, and then I think what made it quite successful is we, we went into the pivot quite open-minded. Um, the experience of having had such strong conviction about a, a problem and a solution and then actually realising we were wrong really, really humbles you and really makes you go, well, actually everything is assumptions until we've you know, proven otherwise and we need to really just optimize optimize for learnings. That helps mm. a lot. But I, I distinctly remember kind of worrying about how we're going to present this pivot to the team and mm. essentially say to them, you know, the work you've been doing over the last year, <laughs> depending on like when people joined, we're not continuing. Like yeah. we're, you know, essentially commenting out that code and, you know, mm. we deleted, you know, all the, not just the technical work, you know, we built clinical pathways, all this stuff we're not continuing and people, you know, worked really hard, worked late nights, mm. everything to get that done. Um, people completely got it. They were like, you know, instantly saw why it's the right thing to do. Mm. Instantly like, okay, what do we, you know, what do we move on to next? Um, 
so I think you know having that trust and that buy-in in the in the team really team. helped that people yeah. were like okay even if we're, ch- we're changing all of that I still want to be here I still want to be yeah work on these problems together that's incredible in terms of you guys as a company um, I mean you know you you mentioned you wanted to talk about culture and diversity I mean could you touch on you know uh, your culture here at Acurix mm. um, and kind of you know your thoughts on diversity and if uh, and how you foster it yeah yeah um, so on on culture first I think culture very much just comes out of like what you do you can mm. it's very hard to um, say like you know that's the culture we want and then like go and make it I don't mm. think it works like that so you know in our early days our culture came from the four of us in an office once a week we'd be like oh she'll go Know, grab lunch together at one of the you know curry houses in Houston or something like that. So that was our culture, and then we you know we still do weekly team lunch. Mm. Um, we um, you know have yeah a lot of culture around you're doing things as a team. Say spending a lot of time with users. That was you know always been a strong part of our culture. So when someone joins, we make sure in their first couple of weeks they're out in a GP practice, you know, meeting users, talking to users. So I think what you do when you're small. It's a lot easier to introduce things when you're small. You try and introduce something when you're big, and it's I hard. think it's really hard. So a lot of our time now is spent going, mm-hmm. well, what are the things we actually want to be doing when we're 100 people, 200 people? Do mm-hmm. we need to be introducing them now? We made our team meals pescatarian, because we like, oh, if we do it now, people will get it. If we try and do it when you're 100 people, people will be like, where's my meat? Um, <laughs> we started doing town hall on Friday afternoons to update everyone, you know, hear things going on. We were like, when we started, there were 10 people, we're kind of like, what's the point? We all sit around a table. Um, but we're like, it's gonna be hard to introduce when we're 50 people, so let's start doing it. Funnily enough, we did the first one and everyone was like, this is amazing, I didn't know all this stuff was going on and you just kind of assume all this stuff yeah. being communicated. Um, a lot of it, I think, we, we try and not, if we're going to do something and commit to something, really do it. So I think like one-to-ones are a good example. Right? We do weekly one-to-ones. Mm. Um, we, you know, we'll do everything possible to definitely not to cancel them. We might, you know, reschedule and things like that. But people have their one-to-ones every week. It sets the expectation with line managers. They should be doing one-to-ones mm. every week. It's really easy for a company to say our part of our culture is, you know, we support our team. We care about their development. Mm. We loads of feedback and stuff like that. But if People don't turn up for one-to-ones or you know keep rescheduling them it doesn't you know that's not your culture it's what you want your culture to be it's amazing because um, you guys started at the like you were very conscious of it at the beginning i think a lot of it came from like what's what's the sort of company we want to build we've mm. both had experiences in previous companies where we'd been unhappy we'd felt either unsupported or like there wasn't enough transparency or like decisions were just being made above our head and being yeah. passed down and that's not what we wanted to build and mm. you know what probably the thing that keeps us up at most at night Lawrence and I isn't are we building the right product or something like that have we made the right hire it's are we going to get to that point where we're a size where people start to feel like that and we don't know about it mm. that's like you know really worrying because those are the things that are really hard to fit yeah um, so yeah there's loads of loads of different elements loads of different elements to our culture mm. um those those team meals once a once a year we go away for a week as a team um our team retreat like a, a work you know for the week to work but on more strategic stuff but then for the weekend we invite people's partners and kids again because the first time we did it we were like oh why don't we invite people's partners um, yeah. and if you try and introduce that later and you're a big team it's you know this yeah. big expense and <laughs> logistical complexity yeah um we do 360 feedback twice a year we do it in quite a different way where Everyone shares theirs. I go first. Interesting. I don't. We don't see everyone's feedback that they give each other. It's only the person who receives it sees it. Because if someone's giving feedback to someone else on the team, I don't want them worrying about oh, is Jacob going to read it and think something. I want them to be as open as possible. That's much more important. Okay. Um, we you know put quite a lot of effort into onboarding people and having plans. For, you know, really tight plan for the first three months. We've got personal development plans. We're working on progression frameworks. Um, loads of stuff we go for dinner once a month as a team well actually yeah. t- every other month we make dinner together as a team but then every other month we go out for dinner as a team mm-hmm. um, so yeah a like, huge huge variety of yeah. stuff in our culture it's, it's more more of a habit right yeah I think that's a really good way of describing it yeah. people are used to these things they come along that's how it works mm. Lawrence says this to the team often like the culture's out of our hands now it's it's not 
Lawrence and I between us mm. are like less than 10% of the culture. It's, mm. yeah, we can try and nudge it along in the right direction, mm. but it's very much set by the team, by the behaviours, by think you know things they do when people join the team um and that's the way it should be right mm. we really want people to to take initiatives and do do crazy things we haven't even thought of mm. um you know things i love we're talking about on the way in like when we moved into the office everyone drilled into the concrete walls to put tvs up and mm. put in the networking and like we you know built our furniture and stuff like that to make it our own space and things like that making curries together so that yeah yeah and cooking together <laughs> i mean even just having our having our own office space, so we had that when there were three of us um, yeah. in this like terrible office, but we had our own space and we could put things on the walls and shout and you know it's your own space. Yeah. Um, whereas I think co-working spaces can be really toxic for building a culture because you just inherit the culture of the co-working space. Yeah. Um, and it's probably something that it's really easy to gloss over at the early stages and just be like, no, we just need to focus on product. We just need to focus on revenue or something like that. Mm. But I think in terms of like sustainability, long-term, keeping people here, attracting really great people and ultimately coming to work every day and enjoying it. Mm. Like, I think you've got to make a very conscious effort to, to um, you know, on these things. Mm. Every Sunday night, I'm like trying to think through my head. I'm like, do I think people are looking forward to the week ahead or are they like dreading it and like wish the weekend was like, you know, mm. another few days? Do you guys focus on that employee experience? Yes, we, we've never actually called it that. We do mm. some like employee engagement surveys. Um, we do a lot of things to get feedback from the team. So we do retrospectives. We, people can send, ask questions in town hall or send in anonymous mm. questions to town hall. We try and make sure part of having weekly one-to-ones means that and getting all line managers to ask about mm. not just what people are working on but are they happy means that things can filter up very quickly and it should be no longer than a week that if somebody's unhappy about something it, it can filter up so, mm. so that yeah that's really key as well amazing um in terms of um where you're going now as a company in a yeah. realistic fairy tale world um from a product standpoint in 18 months and five years time mm. where, where do you hope um where do you hope accurate is yeah in, in them two time frames so the in in a five-year time frame it's very much that vision that anyone involved in a patient's care can communicate with anyone else involved in that patient's care that the patient is part of that a very active part of that mm. Um, that we become, you know, ubiquitous across the health system and actually just the easiest way for people to communicate. And we start doing that in other healthcare systems around the world. Mm. And that actually the record of communication around a patient starts to replace the traditional medical record, which is mm. basically what used to be on, a paper, on paper on the screen. Yeah. In 18 months, uh, much more focused on um, essentially building out communication between the GP practice and other providers like hospitals, mm. um, building out the communication between GP practice and patients and so making it much more two-way, much more synchronous, um, communication between other providers and the patients. So, you know, we've got all these diagrams of having all these different stakeholders and mm. trying to join them up. Um, and where we really want to get to in 18 months is, months is that anyone in the, who's an NHS member of staff can look up a patient, see who else is, looking for that, after that patient and you know, message any of them. Mm. And that, that's where we really want to get to. Um, in terms of, the five-year goal is hard because actually, just if you want to be truly yeah. agile, yeah, you don't know. We could, yeah. we could come up with a bit of a guess. We've got a vision. We've got to have yeah. some direction for the mm. team. That's actually been one of the challenges, is, you know, especially after the pivot, is how do we balance like having a really clear direction with like staying really agile. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd say, you know, we're learning more, not mm. every week, every day in terms of what we build and, mm. and trying to optimise for that. Are, are there regulatory changes that you would really, that would really help Accurix and you'd really be excited to see? It's a really good question. I'd say the main, the main things that would help move us forward faster would, are around um, making it easier for end users to adopt us bottom up. So... Mm. It's basically around um, data governance and who's a data controller. So GP practices can just start using us because mm. the GP partner is the data controller. They're also the user, so they can agree to things. Doesn't work like that in a hospital where like a junior doctor there who might want to use us isn't the data controller for the hospital. They can't mm. 
agree to use the system in a certain way and store data in it. So in an ideal world for us, that data processing agreement would be held centrally in the NHS and that means we could just be, we could just move a hell of a lot faster. Mm. Um, we're quite, we used to, you know, have these meetings and be like, oh, can you, you know, it'd be great if you could mandate this or make this happen. We've actually gone the other way and are quite against that because where we've seen that happen in the healthcare space, things be mandated, um, it basically makes you lazy because you don't have to build a really great user experience because people use you because they have to. We want to be in the space where people use us because they want to. And that's the nicest bit of user feedback we get quite a lot is the one bit of software we don't have to use, but we use. And actually, the favorite bit of software we use, all this other stuff we have to use and we hate. Mm-hmm. So we're not keen on like stuff being mandated centrally. Mm. Um, but certainly making it easier to get things adopted bottom-up mm. would be nice. Um, I don't think it's a blocker. Like All of these things are, you know, health, building a company in healthcare is super challenging, but like mm. the challenges are also why these problems haven't been solved so far. If yeah. it was easy, it would have been done mm. um, by many people. Mm. Um, okay, yeah. amazing. Um, is there anything specific that you would like to talk about before we go into a quick buy round? Um, I guess you, I, I we're, missed we're, your question about diversity. I spoke about culture a bit. You asked about yeah. diversity. So um, it's the reason we think having a diverse team is really important isn't because it's 2019 and you know, it, we should it's be, you know, diversity is important or anything like that. Um, it's because we're building for one of the most diverse user bases in terms of healthcare staff, hmm. so that they can serve an even more diverse user base of patients, which literally is like the definition of diverse, right? It's mm. the whole population and it's generally skewed towards more vulnerable mm. people anyway, with health problems, with frailty, with mental health problems, all sorts of things like that. Um, and furthermore, when you look at the numbers, and okay, these numbers are from the US, but like 70% of the healthcare workforce made up of women, 75% of decision-making in healthcare is done by women. So, okay, I've narrowed diversity down to gender, and obviously there's um, lots of different key, key types, but even just focusing on gender diversity, if we don't have that in our team, we're not going to build good products. We're just mm. going to build products that, you know, the demographic here like to use. Mm. Um, a lot of our users type like this, and they can't find their downloads folder, and they, they don't open the browser when they come into work, and, like, we've got to have a wider team that's really good at building empathy. And mm. so... We put a lot of effort into that um, over the past year. It's been a lot of work, but has really, really paid dividends. So um, in October last year, there was one woman in the team and there were seven of us. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just below 50-50 in the team in terms mm-hmm. of gender now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that took a load of, you know, putting every ad through a gender decoder, putting our culture deck public online, putting our employee handbook public online, mm. lowering the requirements on jobs when they're advertised to make sure we get more applications in, but then, you know, still having high requirements when we're screening and interviewing. Interesting. Making sure that no candidate comes in and just meets men during their interviews um, and they've ah, got a good okay. balance. Making sure that every candidate comes in twice. If they have, like, a not-so-good day, we've seen them on a different day. Um, That's really interesting. Lots and lots I've, of I've never stuff. really considered these nuances before. Yeah, I don't know which of them have worked and which of them, you know, just they all feel like kind of semi-sensible things to do. But yeah. um, we've definitely seen a big shift um, over the past year. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, created a, a really great team dynamic. Um, I think the next challenge is making sure that we haven't just done that in terms of the makeup of the team, but we've done that in terms of spread across different roles. So, you know, senior mm. roles, there's also good diversity. Um, making on different teams. So development team, there's good diversity. Equity and pay across um, different, not just gender diversity, but all sorts of, diff- you know, different types of diversity. Um, getting to the point where, you know, attrition is comparable and stuff, in like employee engagement and satisfaction is comparable mm. and progression and development is comparable. Like mm. that's that's the next we're just like you know, baby steps at the beginning of mm. making sure we've even got a diverse team in the door, but there's so much more work to do. Mm. Um before we go on jump on the quick fire yeah. round, yeah. Um, is there anything specific you wanna kind of notify anyone of? Uh, new product releases, new job vacancies? Oh, good question. Um so yeah, start of twenty twenty, um we've Got quite a few exciting jobs out, so we're looking for a really great um, security engineer, we're looking for user researchers, 
Um, even looking for a really brilliant office manager to run our, our space, this lovely office. Okay. Um, looking for designers. Um, lots of roles in the pipeline. They're, they're okay. all on our, our website. Um, and we're also now at the point where 95% of GP practices can use us. So we've integrated with Amazing. the systems in 95% of practices. Mm. We're in about 40 what that means essentially is if you your GP practice is still sending you letters um, or you want them to message you but they're you know, calling up and everything, ask if they use us. And if not, it's free for them to sign up. Amazing, amazing. Quick fire round. Most valuable purchase under £100? My rucksack. It's like this Osprey cycling rucksack <laughs> that has a really good padded laptop section and it stands up and it's waterproof. It's amazing. <laughs> um, a book you would give to a fellow startup um, founder? At the, oh, Culture Code. Culture, culture code. code. Yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. It's like these three characteristics of high-performing teams, um, building a sense of purpose, sharing vulnerability, and um, ah, I'm having a mind blank. Essentially, like, um, creating belonging in the team. Amazing. Uh, most valuable advice you've received? Um, focus on getting our product into the hands of users, mm. not on revenue. Ah, amazing. Um, most valuable failure that in hindsight set you up for success? Definitely spending 18 months building antibiotic decision <laughs> support um, before we pivoted. Yeah, amazing. Um, and what gives, you, what gives you the most joy as a founder of doing what you do? Um, two things. Uh, seeing people progress mm. and seeing people come in um, and just doing things we'd never even imagined they mm. could do. Learning new skills, you know, coming up with ideas that we definitely would have had. Mm. Second thing, the feedback from my users. Um, getting users get in touch saying like, you saved my life, I was depressed at work, looking at leaving the health service and like, now I've, you know, using the software, I've got so much time back in my day, I love my job. Like mm. that's, that, not a lot beats that. And mm. getting it, you know, in quite high volumes is also like incredibly rewarding. Favorite junk food? Oh, um, I'm, I'm not a very junk foody person. Is dark chocolate a junk food? I do love like really, really dark, really? like 85%. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and favourite beverage? Um, favourite beverage, um, I just get through vast amounts of lime cordial and sparkling water. <laughs> um, but if I have to relax, then it would be gin and tonic. Gin and tonic. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on our show. This has no been worries. Amazing. I really enjoyed Thank it. Thanks care. a lot for coming over. You too.